In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, for all the good things, O God, that you give us, that we would be thankful during this time of thanksgiving and that we would be grateful for every good work that you do in our lives. Teach us, O God, to be thankful and to be content with all the things, O Lord, that you have granted to us and the things that you have not granted. Be with all your people in every place. and Help us, O God, to fulfill your will. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here's as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's good to have everybody here today. Uh, God willing, today we're going to continue uh, the Q&A sessions. Uh, if you would like to submit any questions, um, you can please do so at the link here on the slide uh, so that we could uh, answer it in, a, in an upcoming week. Okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So first question we have is in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 13, Nehemiah offers repentance to God and apologizes for not having followed his commandments after hearing about the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem. Why does he do that? Also, when do I know that the problems that I am going through are due to my sins, and when are they not? So um, so just to give a little bit of background uh, about what's happening here in the, chap in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so Nehemiah was among the people who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And um, because the, the people had for many years and many generations been disobedient to God, worshiping idols, refusing to repent, uh, God had sent them many prophets to warn them that the consequences of their disobedience would eventually be uh, exiled. They would be taken into exile uh, uh, to the Babylonians who are ultimately then conquered by the Persians. Um, so the, the exile as a whole was a result of the sin of the people, right? The exile as a whole uh, was, the, was the consequence of the sin of the whole nation, right? Not the sin of Nehemiah personally, but the whole nation um, as a whole, okay? And so even though they had all of these warnings, they continued um, sinning against God. So Nehemiah was... Uh, like I said, he was a person who was taken into captivity uh, along with his people. And because of, you know, his, his stature, because of his faithfulness, actually he was given a high-ranking position as a cupbearer uh, to King Artaxerxes, uh, King Artaxerxes I, uh, so that while he was there in exile, he had this, this position where he had access to the king. Um, and then he heard this news uh, that the walls of Jerusalem uh, had been destroyed, right? So in those days, um, a lot of major cities, they had walls around them because they were uh, to protect them from attack, right? Um, so, so if the walls of Jerusalem would be destroyed, then essentially the city of Jerusalem would be uh, more than it already had been, would be more liable to attack and, and essentially to be pillaged by um, all of the neighboring nations, okay? Um, so there were still people living there in Jerusalem. Not 100% of the people were taken captive. Um, the people that remained there, they were referred to as the remnant, you know, the people that remained. And so here in the first chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, while he's in exile, he, he, he hears that the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. And he is saddened by this and feels convicted 
that he wants to go and return and to help to restore the walls of Jerusalem again, um, because this is uh, the only way to protect the city of Jerusalem, the people that are living there, um, the temple that, that, that they had built there, maybe eventually when all the people were to return back again uh, to, to, to Israel, like the walls would have to be restored. And so he felt like very convicted that this is something that should happen and that he wanted to do. So as a part of asking God for his mercy and to restore his people again, he, he part of his prayer, uh, which is what is referenced here in this question, is in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 7. And he says, we have acted very corruptly against you. This is the, in the prayer. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, or sorry, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Okay. So he is remembering here the words of God, okay, and the things that God had spoken through Moses. And at the beginning of this prayer, he is acknowledging the sin of the people. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept your commandments, okay? So here, Nehemiah, um, he is not, he's not uh, like speaking about a particular sin that he himself did, although he acknowledged himself to be a sinner, right? Because he said, we have acted corruptly like he didn't consider that like everyone else was a sinner but he was a saint and he was like you know blaming the others no he considered himself to be one of the people and he said we have acted corruptly the, the, the corruption he's speaking about is the sin of idol worship and the sin that that israel had been committing for for generations you know prior to this so it wasn't something like you know specific sin that one person did but uh, and, and especially in nehemiah it wasn't him um, but it was something that the nation as a whole did. So this idea of like this collective prayer, like praying collectively on behalf of the whole nation um, is something that is common among all of the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. We see the same thing in the book of Daniel. So Daniel is very similar. He is living in, also in exile in, in Babylon, um, taken in the same exile as Nehemiah. And, and when he is there, uh, he is praying and he's asking uh you know, he, he's asking God, and this is in Daniel chapter 9, and he says, we have sinned and committed iniquity, we have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. So Daniel also, he is saying we have sinned, right? It's the same sin that Nehemiah is referring to, and it's the same collective language where he's saying we even though Daniel himself was not the cause of this, but it was the people as a whole, okay? So in order for us to kind of better get a, a sense of, you know, the second part of this question, where it says, uh, when do I know that the problem that I'm going through are due to my sins and when are they not? Um, and why is it that God allowed this destruction? And why did God allow the, the, the exile to begin with, okay? Um, so the purpose of what we call punishment, when we use the word punishment, like we say God is punishing someone, what does it mean for God to punish, right? Uh, when we think of the word punishment, we might think of different things. You know, we might think of the concept of just taking vengeance upon someone, 
retaliating against someone, maybe out of anger that someone has done something wrong or something to hurt us. And so we want to inflict pain on them, right? As a punishment, okay? But that's not what we mean when we speak about the punishment of God. And maybe sometimes we shouldn't even use the word punishment just so that we don't get confused about what, what's happening, okay? God does not want anyone to be destroyed, right? God is long-suffering to everyone, and he wants to give everyone the opportunity for repentance. And so sometimes that opportunity for repentance will come only through some kind of suffering. Like what will cause us to turn aside, to turn um, toward God instead of being away from God? Maybe it's when we experience suffering. This is actually the whole story of the book of Judges. You know, like if you read in the book of Judges, the book of Judges is characterized by several periods of time. Each period of time, there's like a certain cycle that happens. First, everything is fine. Then the people, they begin to stray away from God and sin against him. Okay. Then God sends some kind of punishment. We're going to call it punishment. Okay. And that punishment might be in the form of a neighboring nation uh, conquering uh, Israel. Okay. Then after a period of time in captivity and under this state, the Israelites, they remember God, okay? Uh, they, they repent, they ask for God's forgiveness, and then God uh, like raises up a leader, which is the judge, which we call the judge, um, to liberate the people and restore them again, right? And now everything is good again. And then the same process happens again. And then the same process happens again over and over and over in the book of Judges, right? So why is it that God in this cycle, like he is allowing the suffering to happen, he's not, he's not sending this song, uh, suffering and this, you know, enemies to conquer Israel because he wants to destroy Israel. No, he is sending that because he wants the people to remember him. He wants the people to realize their sin. He wants the people to turn away from their sin. So this punishment is actually, the purpose of it is restoration and rehabilitation. Like that's the reason behind it, right? That, so... The, the reason that God allows suffering and pain in our lives is ultimately for the purpose of restoration. That is what he wants us to do, right? So the purpose is not vengeance. The purpose is not hatred, right? Ultimately, it's an act of love, okay? Um, the same is true with parents. So like parents don't want to see their kids suffering and in pain, but parents punish their kids. Why do they do it? not out of vengeance, it should not be out of vengeance. It should be because experiencing pain in the short term will teach a lesson to protect them from a greater pain later on, right? When the stakes are higher in their life, right? Ultimately, every suffering we go through in the world is due to sin, right? When God created it, paradise and Adam and Eve in paradise, there was no suffering. Everything that came about in the world, right? Is, is through sin, not necessarily my personal sin. Like it's not to say that I get sick because I committed a specific sin, no. But the sin that is in the world, the sin that has corrupted the world is what has brought about disease and I being in the world might get sick, okay? So also sometimes our poor choices result in <clears throat> painful consequences, right? That are a direct result of our sin. Like for instance, a person who chooses to use drugs can become addicted to drugs and get sick and even die from their drug abuse, okay? That is a consequence that was not something that God intended, but that was a consequence that came about as a result of my poor choice, okay? So 
it's we can't really point to anything and say that I know for a fact that any particular consequence that happens to me or any particular suffering or problem that happens to me is because of my personal sin or not. Okay. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. Okay. But even in the moment, even when we say that that can happen and that happens, what is what are we really saying? We're saying not that God is trying to punish me to destroy me, but that God wants to restore me. God is responding to my bad choices. God is responding to my sin by trying to correct me, by trying to save me from myself. Okay. So oftentimes it's not easy for us to be able to point to a situation and say, um, this is because of this reason, or this is because of that reason. Oftentimes we don't understand the reasons of why things happen. Okay. But we trust that God can turn anything for good and that God intends good for us in all things. Okay. The prodigal son, you know, when he left his father and he went and wasted all that he had, he experienced a lot of pain and brought a lot of pain upon himself. Um, and this was certainly the pain he experienced was the natural consequence of his sin, but he was definitely better off as a result of this experience, you know? So we ask ourselves, was it a punishment from God? You know, if, if, if we were living in that time and somebody was looking at what happened and we see this boy, you know, mistreat his father, take the inheritance from his father prematurely, go and live a sinful life and waste all the money that he had, we might look at this person and say, look what you've done. You know, God is punishing you for the sins that you have committed. Okay. But if you look at the whole story, the rest of the story, okay, we see that what was the conclusion in the end? The conclusion was that the young man, he kind of came to himself. He sobered up. He realized that he, what he was, the way he was living was wrong. He remembered the love of his father. He, was, he returned back to his father thinking that he would just be a servant, but his father accepted him again as a son and he held a celebration and, and, and restoration for him. And now you have a situation where that son had returned back into the same house that he had left originally, but he is actually better off now than he was at the beginning. Because at the beginning, he took for granted his father, he took for granted the house, he took for granted all that he had, he took for granted his relationship with his father, and, and, and he was an ungrateful person, right? And he was wanting to leave the house so he could sin. Now, having returned, he was very different. He appreciated his father. He understood his own sin. He was more humble. He accepted from his father, like, like, like the love that he had. He saw truly, genuinely the love that, he, that his father had for him. So if you look at the prodigal son before and after, okay, um, him leaving, the state of the son after he returned was actually far, far better than before he left, right? So God actually turned the bad decisions, bad choices, the sin that he had made into something that was good and beneficial for him, right? But the only way to get from point A to point B was to go through the consequences of sin, right? So again, I'll say at different points in the story, we might look and say this, you know, what's happening to you is for different reasons. And we might even say God is punishing you. But in the end, when we look at the whole story, we can't say God is punishing right? We can say that God is using the bad choices that, that he made, right? That, that the son made for good, for his good, right? Um, someone is asking, what does it mean that God is the judge? And what does it mean when he says vengeance is mine? Also, there are certain nations that got wiped out as a punishment, which doesn't sound as a way of discipline to restore them. 
So the idea that God is the judge, meaning in the end, God is the one who is going to determine the final outcome of a person. Right? Like when we say God is the judge, and when, when he says vengeance is mine, when God is speaking about himself and he's saying he is the one that is to repay, you know, and give consequence and punishment to people, right? According to their works. There is a time where there is no longer an opportunity for repentance, right? There is such a time in each person's life where the opportunity for repentance is over, right? And that's essentially when our life ends. That's the time where, 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 where the judgment has come and, and it is no longer opportunities for repentance, right? So, so yes, those people whom God wiped out, right? God had deemed that there had been given enough opportunities and that they refused those opportunities. And so nothing else that God would do to them would bring about repentance in their lives. And so it was the end for them, right? So, so, so there was that. There is obviously a, a time where God does judge, right? Um, but it doesn't. But but we often prejudge the situation. We often look at things and assume that there's been some judgment, or that a person is beyond redemption when they're really not. You know, how often do we look at someone maybe living in a sinful lifestyle, and we look at them and we feel like that's it. You know, this person's life has ended. This person will never return. This person um, can never um, come back to God again. Um, when actually maybe they can't look at look at the again the story of the prodigal son. We should not give up on people because as long as they they still have breath, and they are still in the world, that we can still show love to them, and that maybe that God can restore them again to Himself. Okay, number two. I struggle with fasts like Advent because we are allowed to eat fish which is more expensive than the food I normally eat. I'm not eating my preferences, meat and cheese, but am I really fasting if I'm spending more money on nice pieces of fish for dinner? Wouldn't it be more beneficial to donate that money to the poor and just eat canned tuna or a vegan diet? Okay, so we know that starting tomorrow is the, um, is the fast of the Advent or the Nativity fast, which will last for 43 days um, until the Feast of the Nativity. So this question comes up, um, we know that this fast is one we're allowed to eat seafood, right? Um, except on Wednesdays and Fridays. So that's the, the fasting rules for this fast. So when it comes to fasting, there's a lot of things that we need to keep in mind, right? The question is asking, um, am I maintaining the spirit of the fast? If I'm just changing one set of food for another set of food, uh, and the, the new food that I'm eating is actually more expensive than the food I used to eat before. Okay. So we have to like think about fasting. What is the purpose of fast? So one of the purposes of the fast is denying our flesh, right? What it desires. And by denying our flesh, what it desires, we learn self-control. Like when we have a desire for something, even if that thing that I desire is not bad, but I control myself, I do not allow myself to have that thing because it's desirable. I learn to control my desires, right? And, and the, the, the end goal of that is so that if I can control my desires when it comes to food, when it comes to sleep, when it comes to other things like that, then I can also control myself with regards to sin, when things, with regards to things that are sinful, okay? So that's one reason why the fast is beneficial, okay? In addition to self-control, okay, by denying my flesh its desire, I, I, I give myself more focus on the spirit rather than on fulfilling the flesh, right? I focus more on feeding my spirit rather than pursuing the things that the flesh desires. 
because when my flesh is content and full, I find myself, it's harder for me to focus on the spirit. Like for instance, if, if we, you know, after having a big meal and we're full and we try to stand up and pray, it's very difficult, right? It's actually much easier to pray when we're hungry. It's much easier to pray like when we're fasting and when we're abstaining for food, it's easier to pray than we pray like when we're full. The more we indulge our bodies, the harder it is to focus on anything other than our bodies. We're just so consumed with our bodies, with our flesh, that the spiritual is much more difficult to focus on, okay? So in order for, in order for us to be motivated to fast, right, the church who is interested in our salvation, obviously, sets up certain fasting schedules and rules for the whole church to follow because the church knows that fasting is so beneficial to us and that this was actually a commandment of Christ that we should fast, okay? And Christ himself fasted, you know, and the prophets fasted. And we see all kinds of examples of fasting and the benefits of fasting. So, so the church says what? Instead of just leaving up the fasting to be 100% up to each person, and everybody just decides fast how you want, fast when you want, you know, instead the church says um, that we will create some standard rules and those rules, everyone in the church will follow those rules, okay? And these are general guidelines that we follow together so that we as a church fast together, that we are spiritually edified together, that we um, encourage one another in fasting because there's a season of fasting as opposed to it just being kind of up to each person, okay? So the church creates these schedule and these rules, okay? But as we are following the rules of fasting, we should keep in mind what is the spirit and the purpose of what we're doing, right? You know, like one of the problems that the Pharisees had is they had such a legalistic mindset that um, they would follow the law according to the letter of the law, not according to the spirit. And so while if you look at were they following the law, technically they would, right? But they were not fulfilling the reasons why God created those laws to begin with, okay? So, so even Israel, like all throughout the Old Testament, even struggled with this principle, right? I'm going to read from you in um, Isaiah chapter 58, okay? This is in verse 3. Here, um, God is... Uh, rebuking Israel because of the way they have conducted their fasts, okay? Because God had given them fasting rules, even in the Old Testament. And he told them specifically when to fast, how to fast, and they had these different fasts that they should fast. And so, so God is rebuking them. So it, it starts out in Isaiah 58, verse 3, and it says this. It says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? Right. So he's saying the people are saying this. The people are saying to God, why have we fasted? But you haven't taken notice. Like, why haven't you regarded our fasts? Our fasts, like, why aren't you responding to our fasts? Right. We have afflicted our souls and you have taken no notice. So then God responds to them and he says, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Meaning what you are. While you might be technically fasting in one sense that you're denying yourself certain kinds of foods and you're following these rules, but you are finding pleasure, like you are, you are, you are, you are finding some way to like um, circumvent really what the fast is about, and you are sinning against people, like you're exploiting your laborers, right? If it's a, if it's during the time of fast, it's like an ascetic time. It's a time where we need to focus more on obeying the commandment of God, of of focusing on Him, of praying more, of doing right, right, of repenting more. Right. But while they are technically fasting according to the rules of the fast, they are exploiting their laborers. 
okay? Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? Like he's saying, is this fast that you are fasting? Okay, the fast that I am the one who has chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? He's looking at all these externalities. He's looking at all these things like putting on sackcloth, bowing down to the ground, putting on ashes, um, you know, all these things, these self-afflictions that the people were doing. He's saying, is this the thing that is acceptable to me? Is this the acceptable day of the Lord? So then he's going to say, this is the fast that I have chosen. Okay, so He's going to explain now what is the fast he's looking for. He's not denying the rules because God is the one actually who gave the rules. right? So God is not denying his own rules of the fast. But he's saying, while you are doing these rules, while you are following these rules, this is the spirit that I want you to have. Okay, So he says, is this not the fast I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. So he's saying the, 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 the things that keep us in bondage, like the sins that keep us in bondage, that we would break them, that we would undo the burdens that we carry, that we would let those who, whom we are oppressing, that we would, we would give them their freedom, that whatever yokes we are carrying, whatever heavy burdens we are carrying, that we would break these yokes, right? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. So his, so his answer to the question that they posed to him at the very beginning, which was, why have we fasted and you have not seen? He's saying, if you want me to see, and if you want me to answer and say, here I am, as a result of your fast, this is the kind of fast you need to fast. You need to fast a fast of sincerity, a fast that's not just about the food, but it's about the spirit of, of self-denial, about the spirit of forgiveness, about the spirit of giving to others, about the spirit of repentance. All these are, are elements of the fast beyond just I'm changing one set of food to another food. Okay. So even as we are following the rules that the church has set for us and the fasting, we need to keep in mind why we are doing this and how we should be doing this. What's described here, what the Lord describes is the ultimate goal of fasting is the ultimate, like, 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 this is what we should be doing. This is what we should be striving to achieve. Okay. Um, so the question is, is that we are not all like all the members of the church are not um, all the same, right? Different people have different spiritual levels right? Different people have different experience with fasting. Some people have been fasting their whole life. Some people, it's the first time that they fasted and they never fasted before. Some people can fast the whole fast. Other people maybe are just starting out and they can only fast a little bit, okay? So um, the importance here when it comes to fasting is to speak to your father confession about what applies to you and how, okay? Like some people fast with great difficulty, great difficulty. 
And for those people, even who are barely doing the minimum with the guidance of their father of confession, that is considered um, a great fast because it, it is done with such difficulty. Someone who has never fasted their entire life, right? And they're trying with great difficulty even to fast one day uh, a week. Their father of confession told them, try to fast one day a week and they're trying to do it, right? Maybe they don't have the right spirit. Maybe, maybe everything that we've read here it's not really in their mind right now. What's in their mind is I have to change the way that I eat and it's very difficult for me to do so even for one day, okay? You have another person who maybe for their entire life they have been fasting, right? And they're very familiar with the fast. And such a person um, is at a place and a level where they should be focusing more on the spirit of the fast and um, go beyond even what the minimum of a fast is, right? Like maybe I should be giving more to the poor. Maybe I should be um, going and doing community service more. Maybe I should be um, forgiving people that, um, you know, uh, have been, I've considered my enemies more, like those kinds of things, right? Um, maybe I should be doing prostrations and more prayers and, you know, all kinds of other things, okay? So when you look at these two spectrums, right? We can't really look at it and say there is a right and wrong because everybody is different, right? It is not wrong for someone to simply be doing the minimum of the fasting. You know, like some people ask, like, what about like, you know, when we eat something that's soy that tastes just like the original? Okay. Is it right or wrong? Well, technically it is not wrong. For some people, it might be considered far below what they're able to do. Right. In which case for those people, they need to avoid things like that because they are capable of more. For other people, right, that is the best that they can do right now, right? That, that is with great struggle that they are able to sacrifice, you know, to, to, to do that, okay? So um, that's why when it comes to things like fasting, it's really going to be a discussion that you have with your father of confession of what is appropriate to you for your situation. Because I cannot give you that answer now because it's going to be different for every person. Um, you know, one person decides that they want to eat very simple food. Um, you know, some people, even certain fasting food that you could eat, they do not eat. Like some people in Egypt, for instance, they won't even eat anything with oil. It'll just be like water only. Like they'll cook things with water. They won't even cook anything with oil, right? That is a level above. You know, some people will abstain from food until evening, right? That is a level above. That's not even... You know, even though technically in the church rules, we should be abstaining, like in the great fast, for instance, we should be abstaining until evening. That's not something that everyone can do, right? So we don't look at the rules and we say, okay, well, because I can't meet these rules exactly, then that means somehow my fast is not accepted, okay? What is not accepted is something that I offer without any sincerity and without any uh, struggle, without any attempt, right? That is what is not accepted. But each of us at a different level just like in the parable of the talents, um, the Lord praised the servant who earned two talents, the same as the servant who earned five talents, because each of them was given a different amount of talents to begin with, right? God is not looking at the output, but he is looking at our effort in it. So, so what's described here in this passage that I read, that should be all of our goals. That should be where we want to target, where we want to reach. But if I'm not there yet, it doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm doing is wrong. But again, this is a, this is a conversation to have with our father of confession.
Number three. When I'm spending time with God, reading the Bible, praying, sometimes tasks pop into my head, nice things to do for other people. I can either ignore them, write them down to do later, or do them right then. I try to avoid doing them, but I have found that when I ignore the task reminder, I realize days later that I rem never remembered to do the task, like text someone who was sick or go through a hard time. Is it okay to write down the task that pops into my head, or is that giving into distraction and inappropriate to do during my time with God? So it is, it is often the case that when we are spending time with God, that we will remember to do good things or, or remember good things that should be done or have good ideas about things that we should implement or we'll suddenly think of a solution to a problem that we had. Um, like often during the liturgy, for instance, I might be praying and I will get an idea of something that never occurred to me in the liturgy while I'm praying the liturgy. Um, I remember also His Grace Bishop Yusuf said the same thing to me. He said, the times where he gets his greatest ideas of things to implement in the church are, are come to him when he is praying the liturgy. Um, so the fact that these ideas, these good things are coming to us when we're praying actually says something about maybe God is the one who is giving us this knowledge, this understanding, like these ideas are coming from him, right? Or these remembering certain people that we should be asking about because they're sick. This is actually the work of the Holy Spirit reminding us to be like showing love to those people. So by no means is this something that we should be ignoring, okay? But also we shouldn't be doing them immediately. Like just because we're not going to ignore them doesn't mean that we have to do them right then. So there is nothing wrong uh, with, you know, writing down a note and saying during my prayer, I'm going to write down a note saying to remind myself to do such and such. Okay. Because this avoids us being distracted, you know, trying to keep remembering something so that we don't forget through the end of our prayer um, and being concerned and worried that we're going to forget because we, we've written it down. We know that it's, it's, we're not going to forget it and we can just take care of it later. Now, that being said, um, the devil also wants to distract us in prayer by bringing to our mind not good things that we should be doing necessarily, but a lot of distracting things or things that make us angry or sad or stressed or feeling that we don't have a lot of time because we have a lot of work we have to do. So we have to cut our prayer short or that we're not being able to focus on the prayer because of conversations we've had or, I, or, or different things that have happened, right? So those are definitely the things that, yes, even if there's something there that I need to write down as a note, I can write it down and continue the prayer. But when we are tempted with these distracting thoughts, that's definitely when we should not give in to them, right? And, and certainly not give in to the idea of I'm going to stop my prayer because I have a lot of work that I have to finish, you know? Um, prioritizing the prayers that we have, prioritizing the time that we have with God is important um, and that everything else kind of takes its place around that um, instead of sacrificing that for the sake of our other things, okay? So that way we can focus on our prayer. Number four, in the liturgy, what is the meaning of meet and write? Okay, um, so in, in the liturgy of the faithful, okay, uh, Kind of the second major part of the liturgy of the faithful is called the anaphora okay the anaphora and the anaphora the word anaphora it's like in um it's similar it, it, it's it, it means fountain um which is like the, the the rising up or the raising up in arabic actually the word nafura means fountain it's um it's like we are lifting our hearts up to god okay so in this um 
prayer, at the very introduction part of this prayer, the anaphora, um, the priest starts out and he says, the Lord be with you all. And then the people respond and with your spirit. And then the priest says, lift up your hearts. The people say, we have them with the Lord. And then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people say, it is meet and right. Okay. And the priest, uh, the, the, uh, when the people say it is meet and right, the, the priest responds again, meet and right, meet and right. Truly, indeed, it is meet and right. Okay. So what is this meet and right? Meet, the word meet means fitting or suitable, proper, appropriate. It's just, uh, it's an English word. It's not commonly used, you know, it's more like used, um, it's like an older word that isn't really used commonly in modern language. Um, but that's exactly what it means. Like you could have translated translated it fitting and right or, or proper and right or something like that. What's interesting is that this prayer, okay, this introduction to the anaphora uh, is a prayer that dates back to the third century, okay? And actually, we have this in common with the Eastern Orthodox Church, with the Catholic Church, with the Church of England, with the Lutheran Church, with the Methodist Church, with the Presbyterian Church. All these churches have this same introduction, the same, the same uh, Eucharistic prayer uh, as, as a part of uh, the, their service. Okay, So we are saying here that it is fitting and right to give thanks to God, it is fitting and right to worship God, right? When the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord, the people respond, it is meet and right, right? It is, it is right that we give thanks to the Lord, right? It is right that we worship God. St. John Chrysostom, um, he speaks here about this, and he says, the offering of the thanksgiving is in common, for the priest does not give thanks alone, but all the people as well. For having received their assent only after they agree that it is fitting and right to do so, does he begin in the thanksgiving. So he's saying that it's like at the beginning of the prayer, the priest is like getting the assent of the people. Like he's getting the agreement of the people that we are all together in one voice going to be praising God. And, and it is fitting and right that we thank him. It is fitting and right that we, that we pray, right, together this prayer. So that's what meet and right means. I heard that Phoebe, I'm oh, sorry, there's a comment here. It says, the best thing to do is to write the things you're going to do after you pray so that you won't be distracted during the quiet time with God. I mean, I know some people might feel more comfortable doing this, but that's not how I feel. And actually, I, I asked his grace about it as well. And, that, and that's the same thing he said, that there's nothing wrong with writing down notes uh, during the time of prayer um, to actually help us from being distracted, not as a distraction. Um, those things that we uh, remember that are good, good ideas or, or things that we want to do to serve other people, there's nothing wrong with writing those things down um, during the prayer. Uh, number five, I heard that Phoebe, the lady who helped St. Paul in his service, is considered a deaconess by our church. What does that mean? Also, are there any other deaconesses mentioned in the Bible? Um, so in the patristic era, like in the early church period, there were three different offices in the church in which a woman could serve, okay? One of them was deaconess, the second one is widow, and the third one is virgin, okay? Don't get these confused with the service of the deacon, right? The deaconess is not just a woman who is a deacon, okay? 
a deaconess was a completely different position, a completely different role in the church, and it was not um, an ordained position, right? The ordained position, so so when we when, when the bishop ordains a deacon, okay, so let me back up a second. The deacons that we have now in the church, the people that we call deacons, like the people that typically we find like standing in the chorus during the liturgy, leading the liturgy, those are technically not deacons, okay? We use the term deacons because they are in like the, the, the ranks of the diaconate, okay? Meaning there's several ranks that lead up to the rank of deacon, right? The deacon, the, 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 when, when we say deacon, what's really meant by the word deacon is a rank of consecrated deacon right? The seven deacons that were ordained, that the, the, the position of deacon that was ordained um, in the book of Acts by the apostles, right? If you remember, right, um, when there was a lot of dispute about the distribution of food um, to widows and to the people, and the people would come to the apostles and they would just, you know, say, like, you know, they have these problems and things about distribution of food. And so, the apostle said, it is not right for us to leave the ministry of the word to serve tables. And what he meant was, is that each role, each position has their own role, has their own focus, right? Like the service of the apostle is not to deal with that type of issue as far as the distribution of food, but to, to work on, you know, the service of the word, the preaching, right? So at that time, they appointed seven deacons. Okay, so those seven deacons that were appointed are not the same kind of deacon that we have now when we speak about deacons, right? They were full consecrated deacons, okay? So, so the, in our church, the, the consecrated deacon, this is a rank that wears black, um, you know, looks like a priest actually. Um, and they're able to give the communion, the blood, not the body, just the blood. Um, and, and they're intended to be a, like a servant who works full time in the church, um, who serves on the, on the board actually, Technically, so if the, the, the church board is called the board of deacons, originally, and the intent was, is that 100% of the board members would be deacons, like full deacons, not, not the deacons like that we call deacons. The, the deacons that we call deacons, um, like in the Catholic church, the, the term they use is altar boys, right? They're, they're people, that, they're people that, that help in the liturgy and they serve in the liturgy, but they're not doing the role of the full deacon. So in the original church, the three ranks um, of the priesthood, right, uh, or the, the clergy, you would consider to be the bishop, the deacon, and the presbyter, okay? The bishop, the deacon, and the presbyter. The presbyter is the priest. Uh, and, and the first two were actually the bishop and the deacon, even before the presbyter. So, so the deacon is like one of the ranks of priesthood, like under the presbyter, right? So they can't officiate the sacraments, right? They can't pray a liturgy. There, there, you know, a lot of things that the deacon can't do, um, but they are like in that ranking that is like of, of, the, of the priesthood, of the clergy, right? They're considered consecrated, okay? Um, so the, the, the people that we have deacons now, like I said, you know, we use the term deacon to describe them, but they're not full deacons, right? There are several ranks, and if they get promoted up to that final rank of deacon, then they would be called full deacon, okay? So when it comes to the women, in the early church, okay, there is the rank of the deaconess, the virgin, and the widow, okay? And as I said, the deaconess is not like the deacon. Um, so the, the, the widow and the virgin, okay, these positions were like given by a personal vow, like, like, a, like a woman would make a personal vow, 
and she would focus on a ministry consisting of prayer, charitable work, um, living a virtuous life and being a good example like to other people and especially to other women um, in the church of like, you know, being an, a model example, okay? Um, the, obviously the, the virgin is, is someone who is unmarried and the widow is the one who is a widow. She was married and no longer married. So she's able to give like her full time dedication to this ministry, okay? We still have the office of the virgins, right? But we call them the nuns, right? The nuns is essentially the office of the virgins, okay? But instead of living individually, like in their own home, they live in monasteries, okay? Um, the widow is also like an older, an older lady who um, has, is, is single and consecrated to the service, doing essentially the same kind of work. Um, uh, again, doesn't have to be a nun, but can just be doing that, that work, that service in the church, okay? The deaconess, okay, there would be a, a special ceremony that would be prayed by the bishop, okay, on one woman who would become a deaconess. Again, this was not an ordained position, meaning there is no laying of hands. In order for anyone to receive an ordained position, the, the bishop would lay hands on them so they would receive the Holy Spirit um, for the purpose of that ministry, right? That's what happens when a bishop is ordained or a priest or a deacon, okay? Um, but the deaconess was, was different. And there was a ceremony, but it was not um, involving the laying of hands of the bishop, okay? And again, their ministry included charitable work, attending to the sick and the poor, to women and children who needed help. They also served to prepare women for baptism um, uh, and, and assisted in the baptism itself, okay? So this service of deaconess had nothing to do with the liturgy, right? Like when people think of deaconess, they think essentially the role that deacons do now in our churches, but by women or girls, this is not what the deaconess was doing at all. It was doing something completely different. Um, Phoebe, okay, which is mentioned here, um, she, she is mentioned in the scripture, um, and she, uh, is, uh, she was a deaconess, okay, she was a disciple of St. Paul the Apostle, um, and she was considered to be like the first deaconess, right, that we, that we hear about. There were other deaconesses during the patristic era. Um, there was a woman, his, her name is St. Macrina. Um, she was actually the older sister of St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory of Nyssa. Right, so Saint Gregory and Saint Basil, they were brothers, okay, and they had a sister, Saint Macarena. She was a deaconess. They had another sister named Theosebia. She is also a deaconess. And there was another woman. Her name is Olympia. She was actually the assistant of Saint John Chrysostom, and she was also a deaconess. Right? So these are some names of people that we know from like the early church history um, that that we know are deaconesses. Um, someone's asking, would God allow the gift of the priesthood to be given to a woman if the bishop tries to ordain a woman? No, I mean, we, we believe that the gift of the priesthood is something that God uh, appointed only for men. And this is not because men are better than women, okay? This is, this is because God chose uh, all of the apostles as men. The 72 apostles, they were all men. The, the, um, the deacons, the seven deacons, they were all men, right? When you look at someone like St. Mary, for instance, St. Mary, she was more holy and righteous than all of them. You know, like she, we consider her to be the most holy and the most righteous saint, right? 
And being the mother of Jesus Christ, you can imagine like how she could have spoken about all of the things that happened with her and preaching and all of that, but she didn't. We don't see her doing that, right? She had a different role, right? She had a different role. So the, the idea of the priesthood being specifically for men is something that God is the one who has determined, not us. So, so we, are, we are ministering to God. Like the prayers that we pray are for God. And whenever someone is ordained to be a priest, it is ordained for the service of God. So if God is the one who says that only certain people should be uh, in the rank of the priesthood, then we cannot ordain someone contrary to that. Number six. Is it right to use the term immaculate to describe Mother Mary? So the word immaculate, the word itself, immaculate, like in the definition of the word, means having or containing no flaw or error and having no stain or blemish. Okay, that's what the word immaculate means. So, of course, when it comes to St. Mary, we believe that she is, is righteous and holy. Um, and actually, some of these words we, we use to describe her in different prayers of the church. So, for instance, in the antiphonary, also called the Difnar, which is like a like the Synexarian that we read during the midnight praises. It's like a different book. Um, one, of the entry, one of the entries for St. Mary, it says, Hail to you, O Mary, our pride and our lady, the unblemished incense who gave birth to the Lamb. Okay. Also in the 11th hour prayer of the Agbeya, we refer to her as the blameless bride of the true bridegroom. Right. So we're calling her blameless. We're calling her unblemished. Right. That, that fits with the definition of immaculate. Okay. Like, like we said. Okay. So in that sense, it's not wrong to call her immaculate, okay? But, but the term immaculate, when people use it to describe St. Mary, they have a very specific meaning, which we reject, okay? And that specific meaning, meaning is related to the doctrine of the immaculate conception, okay? This is a Catholic belief. The idea of the immaculate conception is the belief that St. Mary was born without the original sin, okay? So we believe that, that and, and the Catholics as well believe, that everyone who is born is born with the original sin of Adam and Eve, which is why we need baptism as infants, okay? Because even for someone who has not committed any personal sins, right? We are still carrying within us the sin of Adam and Eve, the original sin that is wiped away in baptism, Okay. So, so both the Catholics and the Orthodox believe this, but uh, the Catholics believe that St. Mary was exempted from the original sin, that she did not have the original sin when she was born. Again, this, this is not just meaning that she didn't commit sins in her life. This means that when she was born, she was born without any sin, any original sin. Okay, so what would this mean if this were true? Well, it would mean that St. Mary did not have the same nature as us, right? Um, and it would mean that St. Mary um, was not in need of salvation, right? Because what, what, what did she need salvation from? You know, the reason we need salvation is because we have sinned, right? In, in Romans, it says that we, we have all sinned. So how is it that St. Mary would then be qualified for salvation? 
But it says in Luke 1, 47, when she is speaking, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. She's referring to Christ as her savior, her own son that is to be born of her, right? So she obviously considers herself to be in need of salvation, okay? And, and, and which means that she was born with original sin, right? Like the, like the rest of us. So we reject the claim of immaculate conception. We don't believe in it. And so to use the word immaculate, to describe St. Mary, even though you could be using the word to refer to her as a person, not to refer to this doctrine, um, but it might just bring a lot of confusion. So it's better to avoid using this word to describe her, just so that there's no misunderstanding. What is the difference between communion in the Orthodox Church and the Protestant Church? Um, so in the Orthodox Church, we believe that communion, the bread and the wine, they become the true body and blood of Christ, okay? And we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where St. Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, it is, not, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ, right? So this is affirming our belief that the blood and the wine become the body and the blood of Christ, okay? And we also believe that partaking of the body and the blood, Christ, is necessary for salvation. Because in John 6, 53, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, so, so unless we partake of his body and blood, we have no life. Okay, this is what we believe. And we also believe that this mystery, this transformation right, that, that happens to the bread and the wine to turn it into the, bo the body and the blood of Christ can only be officiated by an Orthodox priest that has received the sacrament of priesthood through the laying of hands by a canonical bishop through apostolic succession. So what is apostolic succession? Meaning that the, the priesthood that we have in our church, we can, any priest or bishop can trace their ordination all the way back to Christ, Right. Like I was ordained by his grace, Bishop Yusuf. His grace, Bishop Yusuf, was ordained by Pope Shenouda III. Pope Shenouda was um, ordained by the previous pope and so on and all the way back to St. Mark and St. Mark who was ordained an apostle by Christ. Okay, that is the apostolic succession. So the, the priesthood is has this unbroken line of succession of the laying of hands that comes from Christ all the way to the present day. Okay, and so someone who receives the sacrament of priesthood through apostolic succession, through the laying of hands, okay, is the one who, as a canonical priest, has the gift that, of being able to pray and convert the body and the, the bread and the wine to the body and the blood of Christ, right? This is why, you know, not anyone can do it. Like, not anyone in their own house can just have bread and wine and pray, and suddenly it becomes the, the, blood, the body and the blood of Christ, right? Okay, so that's the orthodox the quick version of the orthodox belief and communion um so what about the protestant church the protestant churches they actually there's many different beliefs they're not all the same right many protestant churches believe that communion is only a symbol right it's not truly the body and blood of christ um they do it as a memorial like they do it because christ said to do it as in remembrance like as a ritual to rem to remember the last supper um, not actually reenacting that that event and 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 reenacting the 
transformation of that bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and partaking of it um, in a life-giving sense, um, but just doing it as a ritual of remembrance, okay? Many Protestant churches believe that. There are some Protestant churches that do believe that it is the body and the blood, just as we do, all right? Um, but those churches don't have the apostolic succession, so they don't have ordained priests that trace their lineage back to Christ in order to officiate the sacrament, right? Um, so, uh, you know, for, for that reason, we, we look at, you know, the, the communion that's done in the Protestant church, and we don't acknowledge it as the true communion, um, not because we have anything against those people, you know, especially those people who believe that it is truly the body and blood of Christ, um, but we believe that it, it, it requires the gift of priesthood um, in order to be able to officiate that sacrament, which they don't have. Number eight, what does the term hypostatic union mean? So this is a term referring to the nature of Christ. So we know that the Trinity, okay, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, right? Each one of these persons of the Trinity is called a hypostasis, right? Hypostasis. And, and the word hypostasis in a general sense, what does it mean? It means the underlying reality or substance of something, right? So when we say that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are three hypostases, that means that the underlying reality of God is that God is made up of these three persons, okay? And that each of them is God. So the underlying reality is that God is one made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the term hypostatic union, okay, refers to what happened to the hypostasis of the Son at the time of the incarnation, right? Because something unique happened to the Son in the incarnation, because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they have existed from all ages for eternity, right? At all times, the Son existed before the incarnation. It's not like the Son came to be in the incarnation. He's always existed, but he's existed as spirit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three existed purely as spirit only, right? From all eternity. At the incarnation, the hypostasis of the Son, okay, um, took on upon himself uh the human nature right so he now had still the divine nature right which is what he had from before and now he has taken upon himself the human nature so this union of the divine nature and the human nature together is what's called the hypostatic union right the hypostatic union um, Archangel Gabriel, when he came to St. Mary in the Annunciation, he said, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This idea that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon St. Mary, right? That the, the child that is to be born is taking flesh from her body, but receiving the divine spirit right, the divine hypostasis of the Son, right, from, from the work of the Holy Spirit in her. Also in the liturgy, St. Basil liturgy, in the confession at the end, okay, um, we, the priest, he prays, he says, I believe that this is the life-giving flesh 
that your only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, took from Our Lady, the Lady of us all, the Holy Theotokos, Saint Mary. Right, speaking about the communion that we're about to partake, this is the life-giving flesh that you took from Saint Mary. He made it one with His divinity. He made it one. He took this flesh that came from Saint Mary and He made it one with His divinity without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration, right? So this idea of the making it one, of the, of the combination, the union of the uh, human nature, flesh from St. Mary and the divine nature, right? Uh, in the incarnation without mingling, confusion, and alteration. Why do we say that? Because there was no point in time that his two natures, the divine and human, mix or blend together to form some kind of hybrid nature, right? The human nature and the divine nature remain distinct. This is why we say Christ was fully God and he was fully man at the same time, okay? In the Oriental Orthodox Church, we take this union, right, of divine and human, and we give this union a name, okay? We call this union of divine and human a name. And the name we call it is the nature of the incarnate word, okay? And, and the idea that we refer to the union as the nature of the incarnate word is actually one of the reasons of the schism that happened between us and the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? Because the Eastern Orthodox Church, they do not refer to it as like with that name, they refer to the divine and human um, separately. Like did they refer to the divine nature, they refer to the human nature, but they don't like consider the two together as a unique nature, which is the nature of Christ, okay? Whereas we refer to it that way. And so that, that difference in terminology is partly the reason why it caused a big schism in the church back in the fourth council um, in 451 AD that resulted in the Oriental and the Eastern Orthodox churches being separate up until today. Um, but in a nutshell, that's what hypostatic union means. It is the unity of the divine and the human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's uh, good for today. Let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, for your goodness. We thank you, O Lord, for being with us and strengthening us. Guide us along the way, O Lord, and protect us from sin and temptation. Always Help us to seek your knowledge and truth so that we would see your love working in our lives and to know, O oh God, that you are present with us at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good night.